What's going on, guys? Kieran Hidley here from the Pocket Coach Podcast. So I am so ecstatic about this episode because I get to interview my coach. <laughs> so I'm with uh, a man named James Cameron. Believe it or not, he didn't actually direct the Avatar. Um, <laughs> but this magnificent person has actually helped me shift my life in a completely different direction to the way I was heading at one point. About 18 months ago, I started to consider working with a business coach, actually. And I stumbled across James through a friend of mine, Josh Luthway. You can actually find Josh's episode. I interviewed him at an earlier stage. And uh, Josh interviewed me to James by initiating the idea that James had spent two years in a Buddhist monastery. And that just lit me up, knowing that this man was significant in the art of business as well as in the art of fulfillment and the art of being able to shift his life's direction, being able to step into a greater sense of shifting emotion, shifting thoughts and shifting state. And this is something that I've been so interested in so long and being able to work with James now, it's been over a year. I've been able to shift so many things within my own life in terms of not just business, more so what's happened internal. In fact, most of the success that I've been able to step into within business has actually come from the internal shifts that I've been guided through. And thanks to James. So I'd love to introduce, uh, without further ado, James Cameron. Welcome to the Bocket Coach podcast. It's good to have you. Great to be here. Great to be here. Uh, yeah. Very good. So I'd love to just really dive straight into it uh, as well as sort of set an intention for this episode is uh, what I'm really excited to take people through is some of your story because it's a really chaotic story actually in terms of some of the things you've been through you've nearly died <laughs> that's one thing and you've completely yeah yeah just a couple of times yeah a couple of times more than me and you've also gone through some chaotic experiences in terms of things involving alcohol uh loss of massive amounts of money adrenal fatigue various factors and yet here you are standing as a man that you are and helping people the way you are in such a significant way. It's something that I feel a lot of people will gain a lot from in terms of the, the shifts that you've made that have been profound for you that have led to the results that you've been able to create. So I'd love to just start off with, and I'd love you to actually uh, speak on this, is just a little of your story in terms of uh, the initiation around your uh, steps into coaching for sure. But even earlier than that, in terms of when you were 18 and I, I noticed on your bio that you're in a, a state where you're drinking a lot of alcohol, uh, you actually end up losing your father. And uh, the story from there up until now, what are some of the standout moments that have led to you becoming the man that you are now? Mm, great questions. I guess, you know, what I could probably share is <clears throat> my mother and father, they split up when I was two years old. And it wasn't that there was a lack of love. It's just that their marriage wasn't really working at a fundamental level. And so I was raised in South Auckland uh, by my mother, single mum, with very little money coming in. So to give you some context at four, five, six, seven years old, uh, we would have potluck dinners, number one, because we really wanted to see our friends. Um, but underlying that is that we really didn't have enough food to get through 
So my mother was very creative and from a very young age, she would have these potluck dinners on a Thursday night and that meant we had enough food to get through to Monday. So I was very, very fortunate that there was so much love, so much creativity in amongst a lot of hardship at a very young age. Uh, And not once did I ever feel there was anything lacking, which was a true, true testament to my mother's uh, way of being. And I grew up uh, up until the age of 12 in South Auckland. And my mother decided, obviously, we wanted a a bit better uh, place to live. And she wanted to continue to expand her dreams and goals. So that meant us moving. And we moved a lot, actually. We moved 19 times in 14 years, which is a lot. So it also meant that you know, deep friendships with friends and things like that just weren't as easily possible for as a young man. And so I learned a lot of really interesting tools at a very young age, how to surrender and how to let go of things very, very quickly, although I didn't know it at that age. Uh, And the rest of my time was spent on the North Shore, uh, a little bit of time in Australia. And that time you mentioned at the age of 16, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer. And I'm sure you can appreciate that any young man or young woman, when their parent is diagnosed with a terminal condition, it's, it's challenging. And so I, I, I basically talked to my father and I said, look, dad, you know, this is pretty heavy duty. I'm not sure if I can watch you go through this. So let's make a deal. (laughs) And my deal was really simple. I said, look, when you get really sick give me a call and I'll, I'll come back from Australia and we'll see what happens from there and my father mm-hmm. being his father my father just uh, didn't bother to call it actually was my mother who'd been separated for quite some time who called me and said look your father's getting really sick It'd be great for you to come back now at 17 18 19 I was drinking eight nine ten beers a night half a bottle of red wine I was full of anger I was full of a lot of fear and just emotions that I hadn't processed as a young man. And so all this was boiling up inside of me. And I actually remember getting off the plane uh, quite drunk. And I'll never forget the look on my mother's face, the mother that raised me, that instilled these amazing, beautiful principles. And I watched the pain and suffering in her eyes, watching her son in such a state. And... The state I was in was a, a state of despair and, and deep pain. You know, I was very close to my father, and so watching him get really sick through the cancer was a very, very challenging experience. Um, so I came back. The family was, the rest of our family had come back from England, and yeah, and I just knew in my heart that he had about three weeks left. And in that time, I thought, well, I'll just check in on his business. And of course, uh, my father had left the business, but not told anybody uh, three months earlier. Mm. So the bills were about two foot high on the desk. The staff were still paying themselves and no work was happening. Mm. So my father's pride and joy was crippled at the knees. The people didn't share the same vision that they were committed to anymore. And so I actually had to go through the process of uh, a very difficult decision to close my father's business and to let his staff go. Uh, and to close the doors. So this was a very challenging experience. And meanwhile, some of the family were speaking their polite yet sometimes harsh words saying, you know, you should be here by your father's side. He might die. 
uh, to which my heartfelt reply was, he's not going to go without me. Hmm. And I just had this underlying feeling that we were so close that it wouldn't matter where I was that he wouldn't go until I was there by his side. And that actually proved to be the case three and a half weeks later. Um, I went through one of the hardest things I've ever been through in my life, which to sit there and hold my father's hand and look into his eyes and see all the things that we'd done, all the stories, all the challenges, all the triumphs, and to watch him take his last breath and close his eyes was really hard. And after that event, after that occurred, and my father passed away, I just felt this numbness, this complete just numbness, and it was like the world just went grey. You know, the voices were grey, the scenery was grey, the food had no taste. And yeah, I, I hit the wall pretty hard. I was drinking every night, and you know, I, I clouded this cliche of well you know this is what everybody else does i'll just you know do that <clears throat> and it wasn't working out very well <laughs> so there was a lot of pain a lot of suffering and uh, about a week and a half after that the funeral i was in the car and i was driving to meet a friend and i probably wasn't very sober at the time actually which shows the kind of state that i was in <clears throat> And I was in the car and I came over the brow of the hill and I had so much pain and, and distress in me. And I just questioned if I even wanted to be here, Karen. I was like, I just, I just can't put up with this pain anymore. I just can't do it anymore. And I remember putting my foot in anger. You know, that was the emotion. It was just this raw anger. And I, I put my foot to the floor on the accelerator of this car and of course the speed goes up 80 90 100 120 140 160 kilometers an hour and the car i had allowed it to drift to the wrong side of the road and i've actually never told this story publicly and i think this is a yeah wonderful opportunity to oh. just share the way it was and so the car was on the wrong side of the road that's doing 160 kilometers an hour and i just had this this flash of insight like and it was simple, James, you're going to be faced with a choice and this choice may define the rest of your life. So the car's doing 160. I come over the brow of the hill completely on the wrong side of the road and there's another car heading towards me. And that car had a family in it. And I remember in that three seconds staring into that father's eyes and knowing in my heart that I'd just done something really wrong. And as soon as the car came over the brow and I connected with his eyes, I swerved my car back onto the correct side of the road. They slammed the brakes on. There was smoke everywhere. Their car fishtailed. And luckily and fortunately, he regained control of that car. I slammed my brakes on and my car locked up as well. And I managed to pull it to a halt. And my entire body was just convulsing and shaking at this point. Uh, to which I got out of the car, sat down literally in the muddy gutter and yeah, was violently sick. Wow. Yeah. And it was at that very moment in the mud where I decided that I would no longer live my life, my life like this. 
and I prayed. I was like, God, just take this away. You know, whatever this is, it can't be part of the real me. Just take it away. And it took a good half an hour for me to come back to my center and my senses and my body to slow down the shaking. It actually didn't really stop for the rest of the day. And that was the moment that I went cold turkey uh, from the drinking. I just decided mm. right then and there, that's it. So fortunately, the other car was not in an accident, but I missed that car, Karen, by a hand space. No more. And I remember thinking, wow, how foolish. How foolish. And no doubt this was uh, a culmination of a some pretty heavy-duty emotion, but the alcohol and the drugs that were in my system from... You know, trying to numb the pain. And so that was it. I decided from that muddy gutter that I would no longer live my life as a cliche or as a cop-out. And so I stood up and shook myself off after about 40 minutes, got back in the car, and I think I drove the slowest I've ever driven for the next hour and a half, which would have normally taken me 20 minutes to do the drive. Hmm. And... My friend took one look at me and she said, what's happened to you? You look really relaxed, which was the complete opposite to how I felt. And I shared with her, I said, look, I think I just let go of some pretty heavy stuff. Um, can't really speak about it right now, but let's have a chat tomorrow. And so at that moment, I left behind the drinking and I stayed away from it for an entire year. Uh, and I dabbled backwards and forth. And it took me until I was 24 to get rid of the drinking out of my life. But that was the catalyst for change. That muddy gutter and that near miss with that car. Wow. And it, you know, and then, it just... Yeah, and that, that was uh, that catalyst for change. Of course, you went on and did a lot uh, in business and then as well did a lot in terms of shifting into your own space for healing as well. Uh, so mm. I'd absolutely love you to definitely touch on that as well. Please, James. Yeah, for sure. So making, I like to call them decisive decisions. I made that decisive decision that I would no longer live my life like that. And so I'd been given this gift in many ways that we can actually empower ourselves at any point in our life we don't have to wait for a near miss or an accident or some catastrophic event but it wasn't until many years later that I kind of re revisited that event and got that insight was oh I could have had that insight much earlier in my life I could have had that pivot at an earlier stage mm -hmm. and so I started a journey of self-discovery and of personal development at a very young age of wow if I can let something like that go then what else can I achieve? What else can I let go of that's holding me back? And so I've had a lot of really interesting things occur in my life that have been a catalyst for change. And progressively more and more, the, the catalyst was more and more positive and self-driven rather than just waiting for chance per se to strike. You know, later on in my life, I, I led a project uh, my father, obviously, once he passed away, we'd cleaned up all the affairs and I'd moved back to Australia and I was doing a stonemasonry apprenticeship at that time and, you know, really enjoying the physical work, but I knew that I was destined for something bigger. 
I knew that I didn't want to sell my time by the hour for money anymore. And I just, something was burning inside of me, but I had no idea what it was. And I had some really great occurrences. And one of them was a very dear friend of mine, Daniel. He guided me through an amazing breathing course. And I was 22 years old when I did that course, and I'll never forget it. I remember stepping off the bus and being hugged by this woman whom I never met, who hugged me like my mother. But the astonishing thing wasn't that, it was that she hugged everybody on the bus just like she was their mother. <laughs> and something shook me to the core. I was like, who is this woman that can just be like this? Is she an angel? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> And so I, I sat in that course and that lovely woman uh, co-led that course with Daniel, who funnily enough has become over the years my coach, uh, a mentor of mine and of later business partner. So that course, I got to share this with you. I had so much grief and anger still in my body when I set foot in that course. I hadn't let go or processed anything from my father, father passing away at all, really. And there'd been five years. And I remember going through this breathing process and meditation. And it was like this cloud of cement that was in my chest and my head just lifted. It just wow. dissipated. And it was like I could breathe for the first time in my life. It was astounding is the only word. It was absolutely astounding. And I was so intrigued by the process that I just went deeper and deeper and deeper. And by the end of the course, I felt like my entire life had transformed in three days. And that, that course is the Art of Living Happiness course. It's a phenomenal course. And I, in many ways, I owe my life to that course. Uh, wow. I don't actually believe I would have still been on this podcast if it wasn't for that course. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so, I can definitely back that as well. I've done the happiness course myself from the Art of Living, and uh, it absolutely is so transformational, the uh, technique that's learned on that and the foundations behind it as well is just so beautiful and life-changing, uh, life truly. I can absolutely see how that would have absolutely had the impact. It's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that that allowed me to literally transcend the grief and the anger, something which if you'd have told me was possible, I would have literally walked away and just said, you're crazy. It's not possible. <laughs> that, that was the depth of the impact. And so over the years, I became accustomed to going deeper and deeper into these, these inner techniques. You know, you've got the outer game, the material world, but actually what I've come to understand is the truth is the inner game. The internal world creates the outer. And unless the energies align, mm. you can't create, you can't manifest, you can't bring to be that which you dream of. And so for me, that really sparked this deeper journey inward. It was like, oh, and I was a, at that age, I was on, on a bit of a mission, you know, to have the Lamborghini and the houses and the holidays, like <laughs> classic entrepreneur, yeah. cookie cutter lifestyle, yeah. you know? Yeah, didn't you create a seven-figure um, uh, venture? From but you were working at like eighty to hundred hours a week. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So shortly <laughs> after that, at, at twenty-four, I mean, there's been a lot of different things that have happened in between. But if we fast forward to mm -hmm. twenty-four, uh, over a very casual conversation with a, a family member uh, around a boardroom, 
we ended up creating a quite high-risk, high-tech venture, and it was a electric contiki. So think, you know, electric torpedo, it drives itself into the ocean, and um, it's got a long line, it goes about 2Ks, and it catches fish, which is hilariously funny because I'm vegan, and I don't condone killing anything anymore. <laughs> so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't even be part of the project anymore. That's how far I've you know, grown from that. So anyway, uh, over that conversation, he gave me a problem, which was... Um, you know, often they would send them out and these machines would wash up on the beach. And I just thought, oh, well, that's a bit simple. Why don't we just, you know, strap a rudder on it? We'll put a, like an auto boat compass in there and a little magnet stylus. And I literally in about five seconds, I just grabbed all these bits of technologically, intellectually and kind of mashed them together. And I said, well, yeah, we can do that. And I never forget the look on his face. It was one of shock and amusement. <laughs> and he, just, <laughs> he just looked at me. And he, he went quiet for a little while and he said, what, do you think you can actually do it? And I said, well, look, I've got to be frank. I, I've got no idea how we're going to do it. But yeah, I reckon we could do that. The technology exists elsewhere. We just kind of mash it all together and program it right. I reckon we could do it. Such is the enthusiasm of a young man, mm. which is still with me. <laughs> so, mm. so anyway, that began this project and we did a, a year's worth of R&D. I built an entire team in New Zealand. And mind you, I was only 24, so... I knew very little about team building and how to create the right culture. Uh, I knew a fair bit about mechanical engineering and I had a lot of enthusiasm and drive. And so in that first year, I'd, I'd literally created an animal and I had to feed that animal to the tune of 70 to 80 hours minimum a week. Wow. You know, I had, I had no idea about delegation skills. I had no idea how to really, truly and efficiently manage a project. And what's hilariously funny is at the end of the first year, I had 46 different suppliers. I had a huge team, both in New Zealand. I was starting to build a team in Shanghai, China. And I ran the whole thing off of an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> no project management software, no Trello, no uh, boards or anything in the cloud. It was all on an Excel spreadsheet. So heaven forbid if I lost the laptop, eh? Yeah. <laughs> so we did the first year's R&D in New Zealand. And my boss at the time asked me to go to China. Uh, we had some offices over there and I, I basically argued with him for about three months. And he said, you know, it's a better business decision. And I said, no, I honestly believe it's not. I think we need to produce it here. Wrote the 10 page report that didn't get read. And in the end, I just mm. got frustrated at that age. And I said, well, see you later. I'm going. And I literally just bought the tickets, packed my bag and went. Mm. <laughs> And so I had a lot of ego at that age, which is something I'd love to share a bit more on a little later. Yeah, and I'd love that. So I, I, I flew to China at 25 years old with a briefcase with a laptop, a bag of clothes, and I thought I'd be there four months, Karen. And one year and two weeks later, I came home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, you know, I went up there and it was funny because we actually worked out that it was far cheaper to build a factory from scratch because the government up there gave concession rather than rent one. So fortunately, I had a bit of building experience and I ended up hitting uh, a project that built a factory first. And then we had to do the staffing, the systems, the tools, the manufacture processes, all that. And you know what? It got up to 90 hours a week. And wow. it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy and I didn't want to go to China. You know, I was a guy that went scuba diving and running and fishing and in the mountains every weekend and in the surf and I loved organic food and fresh vegetables. 
uh, and wide open spaces. And I moved to Shanghai, China with 40 million people. One of the most compressed, polluted cities in the world. And so I got the culture shock of my life and, you know, it felt like my world had been ripped apart in many ways and it was very difficult. And I remember this, this time and it was one of the, the busiest, most stressful, high compression times in the project where all the suppliers were starting to supply us with goods. Half of them weren't right. Uh, they had some issues with them and I had to, you know, straighten them all out. And I remember sitting in my apartment and... I got this message from the accountant and the accountant said, I just need to let you know confidentially that you've just spent a million dollars on this project so far. <sighs> and I'll never forget that feeling. I was like, oh, wow. And in not so many words, fortunately, she was a very close friend. She said, look, I don't really want to make too big of a deal, but there's 46 people's jobs back here in New Zealand and we really need this project to succeed. And if it doesn't, I think you know what's going to happen. And I've wow. never been hit so hard emotionally in all my life. And so I was sitting there and I stuck my head in my hands and I didn't know whether to just crawl up on a ball or run and never be seen again. You know, it was such a, a tough one. And right in that moment, I felt the heaviest emotionally and down and flat I'd ever felt in my life. And it was at the, the most stressful point in the whole build. Mm. and I took a walk because I thought oh and I felt that heavy feeling the same feeling as when I was in the, the car if I don't know if I want to be on this earth anymore I thought well I better get out of this house so I went for a walk mm. and you know we talk of fate we talk of these so-called chance events well I happened to bump into this guy called Len who I was playing squash with and he took one look at me he said you look stressed I said yeah that's one polite way to put it <laughs> and he said what are you doing tomorrow? I said, I don't know. He said, well, take the day off and come with me. I said, where are we going? He said, I'm not telling you. I said, dude, I'm at the, like, you know, my project, it's going nuts at the moment. He said, trust me, take the day off, come with me. And I said, I can't. He said, you can, and you will. <laughs> <laughs> this guy was like That's six foot convincing. something and probably weighed 120 kilos and was a good friend. So I didn't really <laughs> want to say no. Yeah. Anyway. Next morning, rocks around, he picks me up in his car and we head 45 minutes out of town, out of the city. And I'm like, where are we going? He said, I'm not telling you. And all of a sudden, the car slows down. He said, wind down the window. So I wound down the window and all I could hear was this. Which was a sound I later discovered of 1,000 to 1,200 cc superbikes racing around a racetrack at ungodly speeds. Oh, wow. So we get out of the car and he says, right, we're going to race superbikes today. You ever ridden a bike? <laughs> wow. Fortunately, I had. He said, right, here's how it works. This is what you do. Here's the safety gear. Put it on. I was like, dude, I'm not sure if I really want to be doing this. And he's like, just put it on. So I thought, okay, well, he's going to guide me around the track and all that. No, no, no. He just jumps on his own bike and buggers off around the track. And so I'm on the superbike. It's a thousand cc's. I weigh 70 kilos. You do the math. It's like. <laughs> a feather strapped to a rocket <laughs> that's what it was like and so i found myself within 45 minutes i had this bike up to 300 kilometers an hour whoa 300 k's first Damn. time on the track 
And you know what's really interesting, Kieran, is something really interesting occurred. At about 200 kilometers an hour, my mind went blank. And just to be clear, I'm not condoning superbike racing as a form of meditation, but that's exactly what happened for me. (laughs) Wow. So I started racing this bike faster and faster and faster. And what I consciously, I became very aware that I felt amazing, probably in part for the adrenaline, but my mind was super clear. And it was at that moment that I re-remembered these wonderful practices that I got taught in that art living course. And I went, oh, and this huge epiphany. I literally stopped the bike, wow. got off, sat there, took all the safety gear off, and I had one of the biggest epiphanies in my life. And the epiphany was this. All you need to do is return back to that stillness with which you came from. That's all wow. you got to do. Go back to that stillness. And it was like, again, this concrete cloud had lifted and I just felt so inspired, so energized and so free, Hmm. yet outwardly nothing had changed. But I just turned the key that turned the lock and it unlocked for me and it unlocked in a way that I couldn't have imagined. So I ended up continuing to race that super bike, not professionally, but casually at speeds of 300 kilometers an hour twice a week. That's and insane. that became and my for outlet. the Americans out there, I just want to say that's 185 miles per hour as well, which is insane. That's crazy, yep. James. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I did that for seven months and I absolutely loved it. But something inside of me knew, Karen, something inside of me knew that it was only a matter of time. And seven months rocked around. Uh, the project was nearing completion. I decided that we were going to bring it back to New Zealand. And I was still racing this bike and just something landed. I was then meditating and doing these breathing practices more and more that I'd remembered. My life was far more energized. There was still a lot of challenges and stress, but I was now dealing with it mm-hmm. uh, through these breathing practices and meditation. And Len looked me in the eyes. He said, something's changed in you. What is it? I said, I'm not going to race anymore. He said, why? I said, well, if you want what happened? I was on the phone to a good buddy back in New Zealand. We finished our conversation. And by the way, this buddy knows me really well. And he said, nice knowing you. <laughs> and we put the phone down. And after we put the phone down and that nice knowing you, the tone hit my heart. And it was like, this guy, my friend Adrian, he knows me really well. And he knows that I have a thirst for speed and that could kill me. I'm done. Mm. I'm absolutely done. So I literally walked back to the track, sold the bike, gave the gear away. Len, my mate, was horrified. He said, I've just lost my best ba- best ri- riding buddy, my racing buddy. I said, yeah, but he's alive. <laughs> yeah. He's alive. Wow. And so that was another insight into the dynamics of the mind. And so from that moment on, I just, I came home a few months later and I resigned from that project once I knew it was going to be a success. And, you know, it was, it was a great success. We spent quite a bit of money, multiple millions getting it going, and that company Mm -hmm. made a substantial amount of money. But as far as I was concerned, it was a complete personal failure at that age because it took Mm -hmm. me eight months to recover. And so I came home, quit the project, and literally within two weeks, I decided that the best place for me to go was a place that a girlfriend had shown me four years earlier, and it was a Tibetan Buddhist monastery. And I just something inside of me just knew that I needed to withdraw from many things in my life that weren't working well. You know, my relationship with money, my relationship with 
how I would relate to people even, even uh, down to my food. And so I went very deep under the guidance of two spiritual masters, actually. And again and again, uh, they would take me through these wonderful, beautiful processes where I got to look quite rawly at my emotions and my fears and my doubts. And again, guess what came up? That big, heavy feeling. Mm, still there. Yeah, wow. It was still there. Even with all the meditation yeah. and all the racing and breathing technique, it was still there. And so it was at that time that uh, Daniel, you know, he came back into my life and he offered me an opportunity of a lifetime. So I was then 26 years old. And after I'd gone through this major healing process at the monastery, which it took eight months to heal before I could eat properly, speak properly, wow. before I was not waking up with panic attacks and sweating. Like that's, that was, that was eight months after that project. There was so much fear inside of me at that age. You know, what if it didn't work out? And was this fear being recreated as different experiences as well? Or was this fear specifically focused on that one experience? Well, you know what? That's a really great question. I reckon that that the triggers were bringing up a lot of fears, things that Uh, through my father's passing through different business ventures that I was a part of through different relationships. And so I got up close and personal with the way I really was deep down inside and and it was tough, you know? And so I take my hat off and I say, thank you from the bottom of my heart to uh, those masters that helped teach me and help guide me. One was based in India uh, and the other was Daniel based here in New Zealand. So they they encouraged me to actually dig deeper and to find the truth because they said, Hey, perhaps just perhaps what you're experiencing might not be the truth. Mm. And I'll never forget that. It was like, Oh, and so the search for the truth of who I really was began and kind of goes hand in hand in personal development. And so I went deeper and deeper and I confronted a lot of these fears and I got to see that many of them weren't even real. They were just some, you know, bit of conditioning some residue like a bit of mud on your windscreen all i needed to do was clean it away (laughs) you know and it took time like it wasn't an overnight light switch a lot of these things were, were very challenging processes and i went deeper and deeper and what i discovered was oh my goodness i'm not the fear i'm not these emotions i'm not these thoughts even these are just conditionings, past stories, past events that I've dragged through. And instead of in the past, they are now being projected into my future, which is causing the fear. Mm. Yeah. And so and I'd I, love I to actually just pause on that, actually, just a moment, James. Uh, excuse me. I'd love to actually ask you a question around that, which is very interesting because it's a, a belief that I used to have when it came to fear, which was this sort of middle ground in this misunderstanding of okay well even though i know i'm not my fear i still feel it what do i do about that yeah what does someone do about that when they are understanding that it's just mud on the windscreen and yet i'm still Mm. feeling it i can't get rid of it what do they do yeah you know what that's such a beautiful insight just the mere fact that you've become aware that you're fearful you're already halfway Mm. out and that's the first step, right? The first step is awareness. Oh my goodness, I'm not, I am fearful. I am experiencing fear. Big difference. Because yeah. the moment you say, I am fearful or I'm scared, that's it. You just lock the door. 
And you're not on the right side of the door, you're on the inside. So the first step is awareness. Oh, I'm, I am experiencing some fear. And that's half of the battle or half of the challenges to just become aware. Oh, I'm experiencing this. And uh, you know what? I don't reckon there's a human on the face of the earth that wouldn't choose a different path if they could. Hmm. And so I call that point the crossroads. You become aware. Oh, I'm experiencing this. Okay, great. Well, at the crossroads, at the, in the face of that experience, what are you going to choose? You know, what are you going to choose? And a lot of people choose in alignment with the fear, doubt, and anxiety just because of their conditioning and they're not even aware there's another choice. And so I love to encourage people to go beyond that. And there's a million things you could choose, but probably one of the better choices is to choose in alignment with your dreams and goals. Like what version of me, what would they say to me right now? Ah, you know, like what if, if I'm version 2.0 of me or the version of me that's truly fulfilling in my dreams and my goals, what would they do right now? And the answer will often be there straight away. And if it's not, it's probably because the washing machine's still on spin cycle and you might need a walk in the forest. Yeah. Yeah. So awareness yeah, first, beautiful. second, become aware there's a choice. Third, this is the most pivotal part that a lot of people forget. And I've been there. I used to do this a lot to learn it the hard way. You actually have to take decisive action. So it's like, oh, well, I, I, I know I need to go and meditate or I know I need to stop eating that garbage food or I know I've said the wrong thing to this person. I know, know I need to go clean that up. And so the next thing, the third part of the process is to take that aligned action in alignment with what you know to be the truth, with, in alignment with the best version of yourself. And so sometimes that's like, go have the conversation or quit buying that food that's not good for you or make the choice to step out of that toxic relationship and create mm -hmm. something more beautiful for yourself. And there's a funny thing. And the funny part about this process is it's very scientific. The longer the gap between you deciding what to do and you actually taking action, the higher the possibility it's not going to go so well. Mm. So we flip that and I just say to people, hey, once you know what that decisive action is and you've made the decision, go do that. Even if it's like book the phone call straight away or send that email or throw that food in the bin like right this moment, do that and feel the empowerment and the enrichment through your life as you go through that process. It's pretty phenomenal. Wow. And that began my road out of the flattest, most darkest place in my life is I kept taking action and I just kept going and I just kept, kept searching for the truth. And every time a fear or a doubt or an anxiety came up, it was interesting. I developed this process of signposts and I was like, well, if I'm not, if I'm not my thoughts and my emotions and my feelings, if that's not the true me, they're kind of like signposts, like you know, if we say, well, there's a signpost to Wellington, but we're in the north. It's not really Wellington. It's just pointing towards it. And so I decided that all these internal pointers or signposts, that's what they were going to be. Mm. They were going to point me in a different direction. So I'd see them. I'd experience the emotion early on of fear. And I go, well, that's, that's not even real. Like, that's not the real truth. I'm experiencing it, but it's not really true. What's the truth? And it'd be like, oh, the truth is you need to go deal with that or you need to have this conversation or you need to let this toxic relationship go. Mm. And the faster I got into action, the better it got. Wow. I'd, I'd actually love to hear an example of 
when this has been useful as well and how you practically took action around that. Yeah. If there's one that comes yeah. up. Yeah, I, I remember early on in my relationships with women that I had this habit of trying to save them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> trying to be the savior and stepping in and, and trying to pull them out of the, the mud that they might have been stuck in. And hey, look, I was probably stuck in the mud in many areas of my life, so I'm not claiming any difference. But I had that, mm. that trait in me. And what that meant was I would give everything. I would just give and give and give and give. But a lot of the time, they weren't able to receive it or not fully. And so something felt off balance. And I would have that, aka signpost, come up with, I don't feel loved. So I felt that and experienced that. And the very first time it happened, I was like, oh, that doesn't feel good at all. I don't feel loved. And in that moment, I just knew that what I was giving was a gift that they weren't ready to receive. And therefore, I was projecting and pushing it on them. Whoa, what an insight. And so I decided, oh, that feeling, that's my indicator, that's my signpost to pivot away from a behavior which in many ways was suffocating to them. Mm. Crazy, huh? Yeah. So the decisive action was obvious. It was like, stop being that way. And so I became really present. Well, that's, that's okay to have that, but I need some more emotional leverage. And so I came up with that term of, creating emotional leverage is you got to develop a bigger reason why otherwise you're going to keep going with those same old habits mm. and so emotional leverage these signposts can be leveraged in such a positive way it's like oh that thing's coming up great that's showing me that i haven't yet gone down the path that's probably more beneficial or beautiful or easeful and this uncomfortable feeling is helping me to see that and make the pivot now, if I keep going through that cycle and going through it, I probably haven't learned the lesson. So to pivot out of it, it's like, well, why is this so important? And you go deep into that why. And my why was this. James, if you want to be in the most amazing, beautiful relationship you could imagine, you've got to give up those old behaviors because they're certainly not working. <laughs> you know? So that was pretty heavy on me and in a positive way. It allowed me to pivot these behaviors out of darkness and out of a behavior that wasn't in alignment with who I truly wanted to be. And mm. so that, that's what I did. Oh, so good, James. So good. And then you actually started to step into working with other people as well. So I'd love to hear what inspired that decision and what was a big factor in the transformation from you going from a state of healing to the state of abundance and assistance, the mm -hmm. state of being, being feeling, not just feeling, but actually doing this uh, ability of helping shift other people's directions, other people's experience mm -hmm. of life. What's been a big pivot there for you? Yeah, great question. I love that. I guess the best way I can respond is first with a phrase and this phrase is nobody wins alone you know yeah. over the years you know <laughs> i've been in the coaching industry nine years now working with all different kinds of people from 
high rolling CEOs down to drug addicts, in fact, mm. uh, from youth leaders all the way to single mums. You name it, I've, I've been a part of that. And you know what? That philosophy of nobody wins alone. I haven't met a single person on the face of the earth that's done it all by themselves, and I'm no different. Yeah. So at the end of my so-called healing journey in the monastery, uh, this world-class coach came back into my life and said, hey, I've been observing what you've been doing in a couple of the conversations you've been having with people. Are you aware what's happening in their life? And I was like, well, no. He said, oh, well, you know, Matthew... Uh, he's been talking about that big dream. You know, he left his job and he's um, he's doing that right now. And I didn't connect the dots, you know. <laughs> and I changed a couple of names just to keep the confidence. But there's a let's hmm. say there's a lovely la- lady called Mary, and she was a single mum. Uh, she'd stepped into a relationship with a new man, but it was very toxic. And so I hadn't realised, but these people would come and visit. We'd have a conversation, and some stuff would change in their life. And I just you know, didn't really connect the dots. And so this amazing coach said, uh, actually, I think you would make a brilliant coach and I'm willing to train you if you're up for it. And so he offered me the opportunity wow. of a lifetime. And you know what? At 27 years old, I said yes to becoming a coach. If I'd have known what was on the journey, I don't know what I would have said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, there's been really, yeah. if I'd have known yeah. the true depth of the journey, I might have said no. Uh, thank goodness I did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, with both hands. Yeah. You know, and, and so I spent many, many years, many years training as a coach with great masters of the trade, like some of the absolute top of the top, the best in the world even. And I was like a sponge. I just knew that on the side of every fear that I had was something even more amazing. And so instead of running from my fears, doubts, and anxieties, I observed at 27, 28, I developed this really unusual habit of leaning into them. And a lot of my friends are like, you're wow. just freaking weird. <laughs> why, why would you do that? And I'm like, well, yeah. it doesn't feel good at the time, but I feel so much better on the other side of it. Mm. And so again, that's the awareness factor that we were talking about earlier is you become aware of something and that is like the catalyst for empowerment. Just the awareness is like half 50% of the equation. Mm. Right? Yeah, and so I just went deeper and deeper into training as a coach. And after a reasonable amount of time, I started working with leaders. I started working with business owners. And very quickly, I I found out that I wanted to work with people that were making a massive impact in the world. And I wanted that because it was was kind of scary and edgy for me because like, well, how am I going to serve a vision like that? And so what I also observed is it was bringing the best out in me. It meant that I could no longer ask anything of my clients that I wasn't either embodying or fully realized in within myself. Mm. Tell you what, that's a catalyst for internal change if you want one. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. So if I wasn't doing my practices, what right did I have to ask somebody else to do them? Yeah. You know? If I wasn't stepping up and taking massive, bold moves on a weekly and daily basis, what right did I have to help guide somebody else through that process? And so I went through this massive up-leveling in every area of my life, from my diet to my exercise, Mm. thought processes, relationships. It was crazy. And so now I find myself, I run a very successful coaching practice now. Uh, I work with inspiring entrepreneurs that have a massive vision to 
positively impact the world. And, you know, some of these people's visions, one of them came to me and I said, look, what's your vision? He said, I want to empower and enable a thousand purpose-driven businesses in three years or less. And my spine started tingling. (laughs) I said, tell me why. Tell me your reason why. He says, I know I can. I'm just not sure how I'm going to do it, but I know I'm here on this earth to help people. And I know that you can help me. And so we started. Wow. You know, this guy has gone on inside 18 months. He's literally saved three people's lives. Uh, He's created multiple businesses. One of the businesses he created from nothing. It's doing 800 grand already. Reoccurring revenue. Uh, Through the work together, we helped take one of his companies that he's working with. Their turnover, I think, was 7 million. And they're on target by the end of the year to hit 50 million in revenue. Wow. So actually what I care much more about than the figures is that guy's home on time for dinner. Mm. He cares deeply about his family. He doesn't overwork and he's fully present with his wife. You know, so they've been through some pretty challenging times and he regularly takes time out to help her with her growth. He regularly says to me, hey, look, would it be easy and okay if we could reschedule our call because my kids are cross-country today in the middle of the day? He's that kind of guy. Wow. So I'd love to share with you a principle called the ripple of impact, and that's why I believe I'm here on this earth, is to create and help other people and empower them to create such a ripple of impact that It's not about them. It's not about the clients or the money. It's about how you can help other people transform their life if they want to. You know, how good can life get? How how creative can you be? How fulfilled can you experience your life to be? How much happiness, how much joy can you experience as a human? And so those are the the channels and the pathways that I experience now, working with these phenomenal entrepreneurs with world-changing visions and to empower and enable their greatness, really. And that's my passion now. That's so beautiful, James. And this is exactly why I wanted to interview you for this podcast. It's incredibly enlightening. Uh, The lessons that are learned through your story, I really feel even though I've heard much of the story before, I really feel almost what it felt like to go through that with you. So thank you so much for coming on, truly. Uh, There's so much gold in this. And uh, I'd actually love to conclude with just three really short rapid-fire questions if you're open to that. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so the first is what's a real stand out so it can be any sort of insight but insight that has come to you over the course of the work that you've done on yourself have a yes mind Ooh. never say no and always be open to receiving feedback no matter how hard it is open your heart and your mind to receive and don't justify or deflect or defer it <sighs> love that what would you say to someone who is currently feeling stuck in their life right now? Reach out 
don't do it alone get mm. somebody in your team that can help you that you trust and follow them and follow the people that are already winning at life fire catches fire yeah. and lastly what heals you stillness oh so good james thank you guys if you haven't already all right which i absolutely recommend i highly recommend following this man on social media so you can find him on facebook james cameron you can find his website as well visionaryleadership.co.nz is that correct james yeah 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 and the work he does is absolutely extraordinary i've been blessed enough to work with james for just over a year now as i explained and uh, it's not just the insights it's the internal shifts that i gain from these insights that he's helped me step into that i'm so grateful for so once again james thank you so much for coming on and uh please is there anywhere else that people can find you as well or if people are wanting to reach out or uh, work with you even where can they find you for that yeah flick me an email on the website and yeah it's been mm. an absolute pleasure to join you for the chat thank you oh, thank you so guys thanks once again for tuning in if you felt that you got <laughs> even a little bit which i can guarantee that you probably got more than just a little bit from this episode please share it subscribe to the pocket coach podcast and please as well if you do feel that like you got anything would absolutely appreciate a review as that actually allows us to reach further people more people that would benefit from these fantastic stories and the information that these people share on this podcast so without further ado, guys, lots of love, stay blessed, and take care. See you next time.